welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. It's great to be here this evening. It feels like I don't get around here often enough. And when we look at the preaching, Ross, I'm always figuring out ways to to try and be here more. The last while I haven't been around as much as I would have liked. And last week I was across at our churches in Pumalanga. I visited our church in Secunda and our church in Stanaton. It's going really well there. It's just so great to see how God is stirring hearts and lives of, of young people, old people, children. The children's church in Stanaton is just fantastic. They got I didn't even know there were more kids in children's church than in the main service. It's really just a fantastic place to be and just great privilege to minister there. And Secunda is a bunch of predominantly young people, mostly engineers from Sasol, but they're beginning to reach across to other parts of, of the town as well. I want to encourage you to keep praying for them, keep supporting them. If you're around in the area, go and visit. And as I was driving there last week, I received an SMS in the morning. WhatsApp message from a pastor friend of ours who received a message from a friend of hers. She sent me the message. Some of you may have seen in, in the newspapers. In the week, she, the message just struck my heart in such a powerful way. She said, translating from Afrikaans, she said, please pray. I it was from a, a, a missionary in, in Afghanistan, in Kabul. And she said, please pray for him. Been at work and I heard there was a, a bomb blast at home. And the words that really struck me was just the last sentence said, I'm the French to whom she sent the message. But I don't know if my people are still Please pray, I don't know if my people are still alive. And what had happened is, she works as a, a doctor in a clinic, and she normally works Mondays and Wednesdays only, and for some reason that day she was called in the, to work as well, and she went into work. When she was at work at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a bomb blast at her home, and her home is where their church was, where they had their Bible study, and the whole church had been gathered together in that home that day, and a bunch of Taliban walked in and shot many of the people and then they were confronted by security forces and they all had um, suicide vests on and two of them were shot dead but the third one detonated his suicide vest and blew up their home. She went home, didn't go quite home, just a house down the road from where she stayed. The news filtered through and then sort of the messages carried on coming through through the course of the day. Just heard, it's confirmed, (laughs) my family is dead. My house is wiped out. Literally all I still have is the clothes on my back. And as I was going and processing through this, because, you know, driving from here to Secunda, San Antonio, you've got a lot of time to think, and then to San Antonio, and then back here the night. I wasn't planning on saying this. I just, just felt to share this for all of us. I was challenged incredibly. But what do I do with the freedom I have to worship Jesus? That evening, she was placed in a very high 
security environment because the Taliban had said after the bomb explosion, they'd said, yes, we targeted the family and because of the work that you were doing, the Christian work that you were doing, and she realized they missed one, her. <laughs> she was kept in a very safe environment because they wanted to wipe out the whole family and they didn't realize that she wouldn't be there at that time as well. I was just so challenged, just in my heart, but we've got moments like this where we can freely put our hands up in praise and worship. You know that's the minority of the church that gets to do that. The modern majority of the church is in countries where we can't. I don't have an answer for us. I just want to ask us to pray into this and ask God what it is. What is it that he wants us to do with the freedom in Christ that we have been given? Bearing in mind the lack of freedom that so many others have. Is there something we can do with our freedom to help those who don't have the freedom? And then for me to appreciate the freedom that we do have. That we really don't have to live in fear that someone's going to walk in here with a bomb and blow us up because we're singing to Christ. Large parts of the world today, that is a reality. I just want to hold it out there and ask you to pray for missionaries all across the world. Pray for the persecuted church. It's something that we don't realize so often now, but there are more martyrs today than at any stage in human history. Martyrs for Christ. Many of us miss this and kind of we try to Mention it from time to time, but when the, the whole war in Syria started, it's interesting the media picked it up that the one big target was the Christians. Because that was the infancy of what we have today as the Islamic State. And what was destroyed more than anything else at the start of the, the Syrian war was about a year or two years ago. People who were suffering the most were the Christians. It's amazing how how easy we are blinded to that truth. I want to encourage us, pray into that. Let's ask God to say, God, is there something we can do to help in those environments? Even if it's just a commitment to pray. Pray specifically for, um, no, I've forgotten her name. What's the Grunewald lady who you read the newspapers? Anneli Grunewald. Pray for her, obviously going through just an incredibly emotional time at the moment, having lost everything she had on her way back to South Africa, and they're trying to, she doesn't have a passport, so she can't get back to the, they're trying to organize, her passports were blown up in the house, so they're trying to figure out kind of just diplomatically to get her back home and all of that if she hasn't back, come back home yet. But let's just keep praying for her and for the many other thousands like her all across the world. So that was just as an added extra. But let's pray into that. Pray for India. Pray for many parts of the Middle and Near and Far East. There's a website for those of you who are interested. You should all be interested. Go and visit voiceofthemartyrs.com. Just read a little bit some of the stories. There's a great book that the DC Talk Band brought out a while ago, Jesus Freaks. Speaking about people who've given their lives for Christ. I've got a beautiful video and maybe one day in church we should just watch it so it can make us all cry. About a man 
Nathan Saint, Nate Saint and a bunch of his friends. And they went to a people known as the, I just wasn't going to say this at all. There's no words coming from anyway. A people in the Amazon called the Alka. Alka means violent. <laughs> no foreign people had ever penetrated the Alka. And these four friends, young people, wives and families back home, got an aerop- a little airplane and flew towards the Alka. Flew over them a couple of times, did flyer drops and stuff, pictures, and then eventually landed on a beach close to where they were. And for the first time, and recorded history. And they've got all this video footage. It's really beautiful. People came from the Alka to meet them, some ladies, and brought them back to their tribe. And they started preaching the gospel at them. A couple of days later, their bodies were found floating in a river. And then the wives went to the Alka with their kids. They were invited to come back because of the seeds that those men had been sown. And just an incredible story and sort of a highlight for me is the guy who killed Nate Saint, baptized Nate Saint's son. The guy speared his dad to death, baptized him later on when he moved there as pretty much an infant, grew up amongst the Alka. The guy killed his dad, baptized him. He was one of the elders in the church amongst the Alka now. Just incredible how God uses but it's so many stories, and I think that book, if you want to read that book, it's called Through the Gates of Splendor, the story of Nate Saint and, and his friends. Martyrs all across the world, for some reason in the Western world, we're just oblivious to. There's another book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's going to take you a long while to read. It's a fat book like this. If you don't like reading, there's a little one, Fox's Little Book of Martyrs where they've reduced it a little bit, but I think it's something that all of us as Christians should carry in our heart that that is the gospel of Jesus. That it's not about me. That no greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his friend. Christ is all of our friends. Let's keep praying into that. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us in that way. This evening I'm wanting us to Talk about something totally different. About tests. Some of us, we're a little bit uncomfortable with the concept of tests. We don't like tests and exams. Exams are not cool. They've got a negative connotation to most of us, especially those students. The rest of us, we sort of have selective amnesia. We don't remember too much around tests and exam stress and all of that. I want to read us just a, a couple of scriptures before we get to what I'm actually wanting to share on that. Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes, behold, his eyelids, test the sons of men. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. I think the order might be a little different to the way you have it up there. Fire tests the purity of silver and gold. It's Proverbs 17. But the Lord tests the heart. 
Job 23, right in the midst of this struggle that he went through in his own life. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. John 6, Jesus is just about to feed the multitude. He turns to this guy called Philip. Apparently it was pretty cool. He says, how are we going to feed all of these people? And Philip gives him a wreckier answer. But he says, this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he, would have, what he was about to do, what he would do. When we were students, most of us, we got a really negative connotation to tests. Tests we think are bad. We don't like them. We hate test week, exam time. It's a really crazy, bad time in our lives. And then we hear about God testing us, and we bring those same negative connotations along with us. I remember a while ago, we had somebody who did our Bible school, member of our church, loved Bible school, great lady. Can't remember exactly the way she worded it, but it came to the, that she wasn't going to write the tests and the exams because to her mind, God doesn't work that way. God doesn't do tests. God doesn't do exams. The reason I just popped a bunch of scriptures, just to start with, just to bring us onto the page that tests is a God thing. God loves tests. God tests all the time. When I, lect, when I was a student, I was like many of you guys, when I thought of tests, bad. Because in my mind, I thought, okay, I'm going to write this test, and the reason this test is being given to me is to try and catch me out. That's kind of the mindset I have. I'm going to write this test, and the reason I've got this test is to try and catch me out. Then I stepped on to the other side of the coin and I became a lecturer. And now I had to set up tests, which was a pain in itself. Six people trying to set up a test of 100-odd questions. It took us a couple of weeks every time to set up the test. And we fought and in a good way to really get the test right. And what I quickly realized is that no decent lecturer, no decent tester sets up a test to try and catch anyone out. That the purpose of the test from the lecturer's point of view is an opportunity to see, we want to see, have these students mastered what we've been teaching them? Did they understand it? Have they got it? We're wanting them to progress to the next level, the next curriculum, the next year, the next module, whatever it may be. But before they can go there, we just want to, Let's give them an opportunity for them to demonstrate what they've learned. And suddenly tests became, to me, a positive thing. When I began to realize that the test is not a negative trying to catch me out, it's a positive trying, giving me an opportunity to show that I know the work, that I can do this, that I can move on to something else. Because you know the great thing about tests? If you fail them, you get to do them again and again and again. Oscar SABC chairperson. Sorry, that's uh... You get to do them again and again and again. And what is the reason of making you do the test again and again and again? Is it to punish you? Students, sometimes that's how we feel. I'm being punished. No, it's not being punished. I can promise you, now probably not every single lecture, but all the lectures that I worked with and when I lectured, we wanted the students to pass. 
You don't get joy out of failing students. You get joy out of passing students. Hey, this student came in and they've learned something and now they've shown me that they've learned it and they can move on to something else. When God comes and he holds tests before us, it's exactly the same. He takes us through times and moments in our lives, seasons in our lives, where he's teaching us a bunch of stuff. And then comes the test. And the purpose of the test is not to catch us out. The purpose of the test is not to trip us up. The purpose of the test, he's not sitting there, man, I hope he fails. I've set up this test. There's no way Philip's going to pass this ever. No, he's saying, hey, Philip, I'm wanting, you to, I'm wanting you to do well. Show me that all of the stuff we've been speaking about, praying through, that what I've been working in your heart, what I've been preparing you for over the last couple of months, show me that you've got it. Show me that you're comfortable with it. Show me that you've worked through it, that you understand it, not only on an intellectual level, but on a spiritual level, that you can apply it so that we can move on to the next stuff. Because I don't want you just staying in grade one for the rest of your life. I want you to be able to learn to write properly and write neatly. And then we can go to grade two and somewhere we start, oh, no, I can't remember this stuff. I'll probably get there again soon. You know, apparently when just kids go to school, you go to school with them again. At some stage, we learn to write letters. And then we went to the next class where we learned to write words. But we would never have been able to go to the word class if we didn't get the letter class right first. And then we went from the word class to the sentence class. And then we went from the sentence class to the paragraph class. But if you're in the paragraph class, but you still can't write a letter, not kind of a letter to your mom, you guys, but like a simple letter, you're not going to get very far in paragraph class. Silly example, but it translates so beautifully into our walk with Christ. You see, God brings tests because he wants to promote God brings tests because he wants us to advance. God brings tests not so much that we can show him that we know the work, but so that we can show ourselves that we know the work. That when we go through the trial and we get it right at the end, it's not, hey God, I can do it. God, I know you could do it. I didn't need to tell I knew what you could and what you couldn't do. But the next time the trial comes, the next time the challenge comes, hey, I I can do this. I've done this before. I've been tested on this. I got it right and I can carry on doing this. I know how that works. Tests are gifts that that God gives us in order for us to to move on. In Matthew 25, there's a a beautiful example of, of stewardship. And this evening I'm wanting us to think about the parallel between stewardship and between tests. Because stewardship must be tested. You see, stewardship is the lesson that we learn, and then eventually the test comes to see, do you know what stewardship is? Can you do the stewardship? And we see a beautiful case study of exactly this here in in Matthew 25 from the New Living Translation. Jesus speaking, and he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the the story of a man going on a long trip. And before we go on the long trip, if we can close our eyes and pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful time we've already had together. That we know your presence is in our midst. 
because we could feel and experience it, but more than that, because we know you promised it, that we two or three are gathered in your midst. In your name, there you are in our midst. Lord, thank you for the freedom we have this evening, even as we shared earlier, that we can freely, unhindered, come to worship and honor you. That we can freely speak your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe over your word, that you would cause it to bring life to all of us. Stir it in our hearts, Lord. Make it true, Lord, because it is true. Breathe life over it. We choose to, right now, make our spirits receptive to your word. That, Holy Spirit, you would cause your word to bring transformation and instruction and preparation in every one of our hearts. And, Lord, as is always the case, I just say, Lord, that it's not about any of my ability to communicate, Lord. It's not about any of, thank God, that you may have placed in my hand, Lord, but I only look towards the power of your Spirit, Lord. I'm dependent on you, Lord. I acknowledge that of myself, Lord, I cannot change one heart or one life, but only you can. We pray that, Holy Spirit, tonight you come and change hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. Many of us probably know this story really well. It's one of the reasons I've taken a, a different translation for us. Sometimes when you read it from a different translation, we see stuff that we wouldn't have seen otherwise if we've read it so many times. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip at school, when I was at school, every time a teacher got up to say something, read something from Scripture, they read this. And they always read about the talents, because many of the translations use the word talent here. And then they talk about the talents that we have. The ability to play sport, or to do strong academically, or sing, or whatever our talents are, and how we must look after our talents and bring them to Jesus, and multiply them and steward them well. And there's a lot of value in all of that, except that they were wrong. But the word used is talents, but the word simply talent refers to 30 kilograms of silver. That's all it was. It's literally a very crude money example that Jesus uses here. He calls together his servants, he entrusts his money to them, he gives one Five bags of silver, the other one two bags, and the last one one bag, and then he leaves on the trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. The servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground, hid the master's money. After a long time, this master returned from his trip, called them to give an account of how they'd used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this 
small amount. So now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant, gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least, is the implication there, deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Inspiring but scary story. A story that every time I read this, I tremble a little bit because anything that ends with there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think I want to take seriously. Because I don't want there to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting to me how often Jesus speaks about finance in Scripture. Some modern churches have gotten onto that and others speak about money all the time in church. Probably shouldn't speak about finance all the time, but we should speak about finance. And I believe one of the reasons God speaks about finance so much is because of the importance of money in our lives. We should have a really good relationship with finance because there are very few decisions you will make in your life that is not a financial decision. Virtually every decision you will make has a financial component to it. Did I have lunch today? What lunch did I have today? Am I going to ask her out? If I ask her out, where are we going to go? Am I going to study next year? Am I going to keep studying? Am I going to work? If I'm going to work, where am I going to work? Where am I going to stay? What clothes am I going to wear? What car am I going to drive? Every decision you make has got a strong financial component to it. That's why it's so important that we have a healthy relationship with our money. But I believe even more than that, God has designed our lives in a sense to be dependent upon money. And then he uses money because it's so prevalent in all of our lives. We use it in everything that we do. Then he uses that as a key to all of our hearts because it's something we can all relate to. Because something that this evening as we're talking about the stewardship test, perhaps just mention about stewardship. What is stewardship? Stewardship, very simply, I love this definition, managing that which belongs to another. That's what stewardship is. It's not mine, but you entrust it to me to look after it on your behalf. But there's an important conduit, not conduit, caveat here. There's an important attachment to that little phrase. My job is not to look after it as would be best for me. My job is to look after it as would be best for you. And we see that so beautifully in this this story, this parable, this illustration of this man who goes to the faraway country. He calls three of his servants. He gives one five bags, one two bags, and one one bag of silver. 
he goes away and he comes back. And what is the test? What for him is the pass, Mark? Have you used my money well to give me back more money? Not just have you protected my money and you've kept it safe. That's not good enough for this servant, for this master. Have you looked after it, looked after it well? Have you multiplied it? Have you been productive with what I have given you? Stewarding it in the way in which the owner would want it to be stewarded. That's what stewardship is, is all about. A really important part of stewardship is an ability to give account, to explain. Can you imagine if that master had got back and one of the servants had said, I spent your money. The master said, on what? He says, I don't know. Where is the money? Gone. I can't give an account for what you've given me. I spent, what do you spend the money on? Well, I spent the money on buying all of your neighbor's farms. Well, well done. You spent it well. I spent them, what do you spend them? I can't remember what I spent the money on. It's a little bit if you take your nest egg, for those of you that are just beginning to develop a nest egg, some of you have done a little bit better than some of the others probably. But you've got your little nest egg. For some of you, it's like 10 rand. For some of you, it's a bit more. And you take your nest egg and you give it to a banker and you say, steward this for me because that's what you're doing. Give it to some investment fund manager. And then a year later, you phone the fund manager and say, I want to hear how my investment's doing. He says, well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, we put it somewhere. Where do you put it? I don't know. I don't know what I did with what you've given me. You see, being able to give an account is a crucial element of stewardship. And the one other really important point about stewardship that I want us to realize this evening before we get to the, the crux of the message is that stewardship is incremental. It's phased, at least in the eyes of God. God hasn't come up to us and dump 10 million bucks in our pocket and go, boom, there. No, he comes and he gives us 10 rand. And then next time he gives us 100 rand. And next time he gives us 10,000 rand. It's always incremental. We're going to see now that the money isn't about the money. The steward comes and he gives, sorry, the owner comes and he gives, the master comes and he gives his servants money. And then he comes back and he sees what they've done with the money and then what does he say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to give you more money. Is that what he says? No. I'm going to give you more responsive. I could trust you. We're going to see this now in a beautiful phrase, really beautiful in Scripture. I can trust you with this money, which means I can trust you with a bunch more other stuff. But why can I trust him? What is the, the key word here? This is fascinating for me. I love this when I'm thinking about stewardship. Sometimes when we think about stewardship, we think that the golden word, word is excellence or brilliance. It must be some form of genius. That's what good stewardship is about. When am I a good steward? When I'm better than everybody else. And what's the key word in stewardship here? Faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I'm going to read all these passages. Everywhere it speaks about stewardship, it speaks about 
faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Faithfulness isn't necessarily being the eight-skitter, being the, the one at the top of the class necessarily all of the time. Faithfulness is simply about doing the little things well repeatedly. Faithfulness is about carrying on doing what I've been doing even when there's no one else checking up, even if there isn't every 10-minute pat on the back. Pat on the back. I'm just keep doing what I'm doing. Just keep on keeping on. Or like Dory, just keep swimming. You know, if you want to get to P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, you've got to keep swimming. If you get halfway to P. Sherman, 44, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, or whatever it is, and you get tired and you say, I'm not going to carry on, you're never going to get there. You've just got to keep swimming, 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 swimming. Just financially, Scripture speaks about steady plodding. Faithfulness. I'm all for faith because that's the key of faithfulness, being full of faith. I'm all for faith movement. I'm all for praying. I'm all for trusting God. I'm all for praying really, really big, big prayers because we serve a really, really big God. So why not pray big prayers? It's amazing how often today in church we hear that, you know, the key to your next breakthrough is you must just have more faith or you must jump higher or shout louder or pull it down from heaven or proclaim it more or whatever it may be. Sometimes we just need to be more faithful. Sometimes the key to our breakthrough is a saying that someone I saw posted on Facebook again, and there's a lot of merit to it, that if you're going to keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. And in a natural sense, that's true. But it's also not true. Because if I'm going to keep being faithful in what I'm doing, God is going to see, and Scripture says promotion comes from the Lord. God isn't wanting me to do something new every week. In the same way, if you are an accountant, for example, at work, and you get to work, your boss doesn't want you doing it in a new way every week. I promise you he doesn't. He wants you to just keep doing what you've been doing and keep doing it well. And as you keep doing it well, promotion will come. But as you get less and less faithful, less committed to the basics, less committed when no one is watching, that's what faithfulness is about. God's giving you an instruction. Can you just keep on keeping on? Faithfulness. So important that we understand that the key word when it comes to stewardship is faithfulness. The key word is not brilliance. It's not excellence. We require excellence because I believe excellence is a fruit of faithfulness. That excellence isn't necessarily being it, doing it better than somebody else. It's just doing it the best that I can do it. I've been reading Genesis just a couple of times these last weeks. and So much that just struck me again. I love the book. The story of Joseph, these last few days, just so gripped me again. Here's a guy who, as a little kid, is really arrogant, has big dreams, tells everyone about the big dreams that he has, obviously doesn't communicate it well, so much so that they want to kill him. Eventually, the oldest brother says, probably not the best idea to kill him. There's a better idea. Let's sell him. That's win-win. <laughs> he gets to live and we get money. I like that idea. So they sell him brothers think it's a good idea. And what does he go and do 
as a slave. He's just faithful. Then he gets wronged by Potiphar's wife. He gets thrown in jail. And what does he do in jail? He is faithful. It's one of those crazy passages that you read that the boss of the jail entrusts the jail to Joseph. Joseph can do what he wants in jail. That's a pretty cool jail to be in. He's the boss of his own jail. Why? Because he, was just, he just kept doing the little things right. And then, I'd never seen this before. It kind of just jumped out at me this time when I read it. Then eventually, so as if you don't know the story, I don't have time to go into the whole thing, but Joseph's been in, in, in jail for a long time, and he was 17 years old, and his brother sold him into slavery. He went into slavery. Now he's 30 years old. And when he's 30 years old, he comes out of the jail where he'd been put in wrongly. And when he was in jail, he had a dream interpretation. He could interpret dreams. God had given him that gift. Two people of the king's court, the king's butler, um, sorry, the king's baker and the king's skunker, butler, yeah, whatever it is. What's skunker in English? Cupbearer. Comes and they have dreams and they're a little bit worried about the dreams. And Joseph tells them what the dream means. He said to the first guy, I've got really good news for you. You're going to live. Second guy, I've got really bad news for you. The king's going to chop your head off. And exactly what he says happens. And then he says, remember me when you get out of here to the guy who's going to live. And the next verse script says, and the guy forgot about him. So that he, he continues to be in jail. Two years or so later, the king has a dream. And no one can, he asks all the magicians, he asks all the clever, no one can tell him what this dream means. And he has the same dream a couple of nights in a row, so he knows it's meant to mean something. And the cupbearer remembers, ah, when I was in jail, there was this guy who could interpret dreams. And they call him. And Joseph comes, king tells him the dream, Joseph interprets the dream, tells him exactly what the dream is. And King Pharaoh's response is fascinating for me. Immediately, Pharaoh's response is, well, you seem like a really clever guy. I want you, from this moment on, you are number two in all of the kingdom. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. You do whatever you need, and no one can tell you what to do in this kingdom except me. That's a pretty crazy statement to make right there for a guy you've never met before just because he could interpret one dream. That's a favor of the Lord because of faithfulness over years that God had seen over and over and over and over. God knew he could trust this guy. Something else that I kind of just saw in this week a little bit. The Pharaoh, I think, must have been a kid, like a teenager, Max, if not younger. Joseph is 30, and when his brothers come, and he gives his brother a really hard time for a cup, and then eventually he breaks down. He can't give them a hard time anymore. He gets them back a little bit for selling him into slavery. But then eventually kind of he hugs them, and they all cry, and they have a family get-together. He says this interesting verse. He says, God has made me like a father to Pharaoh. But he's just over 30 years old at this stage. So Pharaoh must have been a, a really young guy. He just hands over his kingdom. But why does he do it? Because God had seen Joseph as faithful. Just keeping on, keeping on. Whatever he gets, puts into his hand, he's just faithful with that. So watch this in in Luke 16. When it comes to stewardship, stewarding that which belongs to another predominantly in the context he's speaking about now, the stuff which belongs to God that we want him to trust us with, what what is the first thing we need to learn to steward well? Well, in God's eyes, 
Luke 16 says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Watch this. This is such a powerful verse. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? You see, it's not about the money. For God, it's not about the money. The money is just what he uses to test us. The money is just the first step. It's the first module. It's stewardship 101. It's the first year subject of stewardship at varsity. And God's going to keep testing us about money over and over and over and over again. And some of us are going to pass it first time. Some of us are going to keep flunking it. But God's going to keep teaching us because he's patient and long-suffering. And he wants us to progress. But he's going to keep giving us a test until we start passing the test. Faithfulness and finance is so important. I'm not going to get into all of that now. It's a, a big thing. If it's something you struggle with, you've got questions around, something you just want to grow in, we've got a CD set outside that you can pick up for really cheap. It's 30 bucks or something. I can't even remember. Um, we give a whole bunch of, of principles around being faithful in finances. But it's important that we see, and I want us to get this, that for God it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about something he calls here the true riches. That the stewardship test we're going to get to now starts with finances. That's where it starts. But what God is wanting to trust us with is true riches. What are true riches? People. Revelations of God that we get to steward, that we get to bring across to other people opportunities and places in ministry. The things that God gives us that's of eternal value that's going to carry on forever and ever. There are many more. Just for this evening, I want us to think of those three. It's souls to disciple, people that He's going to trust us with. It's revelations of Him and understanding of Him that He gives us as a gift that He wants us to steward. We'll look at that in a moment. And the outflow of that is ministry. The opportunity to speak for Him and on his behalf. When it comes to the stewardship test, we can never defer the stewardship test. You can't pass it on to someone else. If God comes and he gives you 10 rand, back to the money example, and God just uses it because it's tractable, we can all get it. But I, I want us to get that he's not talking about money. When he talks about, and in that sense, our teachers were right when they talked about talents as being abilities, talents. Because it was never about the money. It was just the picture that God used. But if God comes and God puts 10 rand in your hand, and then in six months' time, he comes back and he asks, what did you do with the 10 rand? And you say, I don't know, give me a moment. I'm going to find out. I asked somebody else to look after it. That's immediately failed. I can't defer it. I can't say, well, it went really badly because I gave it to him and it's actually their fault. God's going to say, no, it's your fault. It's not their fault. I trusted you with it. If I wanted to trust them with it, I would have given it to them. I chose to trust you with it, so I gave it to you. And all that you have shown me is that you are not trustworthy. So let's work at trustworthiness again.
Let's work at faithfulness. Let's start the course again. You're going to have to repeat this module, and that's okay. We're going to repeat this module until you pass it. We cannot defer the stewardship test. We cannot point to somebody else when God comes to ask us. If we see someone who's really good, and we make the decision to say that so-and-so is really good, and I'm going to take this 10 rand, and Michael is a really good investor, and I've seen he's really prosperous, and he's better at this than me, so I'm going to give it to Michael to look after it. And guess what? When God comes and God says to me, Philip, what did you do with the 10 rand? I'm going to say, I gave it to a guy who's really good at it, and look, it became 100 rand. He's going to say, well done. If I gave it to Michael and Michael lost it all, then he's not going to say, Michael, you messed up. He's going to say, Philip, you messed up. I cannot defer it. I cannot pass it on. In order for me to show myself a faithful, I have to pass the stewardship test. And then for us this evening, that's all just been the introduction. I'm wanting us in our own hearts and our own lives to ask a simple question. Colossians 1, 24 and 25. Paul writing and he writes just one of those crazy verses that will fry your mind a little bit when you start meditating on it. But I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Fill up in my flesh what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And that's the bit that will fry your mind. So we're not going to get into that right now. For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul says something so incredible. He says a lot of really incredibly powerful things here. But he says something. He says, I've become a minister of the gospel, and it's a stewardship I've received from God. I'm going to have to give an account to the stewardship, for the stewardship. God's going to come to me one day and say, what did you do with the stewardship of the ministry that I gave you? Ephesians 4, I don't have the verse up there, says that we are all ministers. We haven't done this in a long time, so let me just do this quickly since we've classroom test environment today. When I lectured, the one thing they said, Philip, you can do a whole bunch of stuff. The last lecture before the exam is always the important lecture because that's when everyone comes to figure out what's in the test. And they're kind of, if it's like an early morning lecture, you know, only the diligent students are going to come. So you want to help them a little bit there as well and give them good clues. But they said you can give really good clues, but you can never give like the exact question and the right answer. So I'm going to give you the right answer now. Everyone do this. Everyone? Everyone know what the answer is? This is the answer. You got that? Some of you are still doubting. Everyone got the answer? Okay. Put your hand down. Okay, here's the question. How many of you are in full-time ministry? Okay, some of you already forgotten the answer. You, it's okay, we can repeat this. Scripture holds before that all of us, if we are followers of Jesus, are in full-time ministry. My job is not to do ministry as much as my job is to equip you to do ministry. Ephesians 4 gives us the job description really well. And that's one of the things I love God about our family is that it's something that He's given us the ability to do. You've each been given a ministry. We've each been given a ministry. That ministry for every one of us is going to look different. That ministry for every one of us is unique to where God is leading us. It could be a formal leadership position, a cell leader or zone coach, whatever. It could be something totally informal, but a ministry that God has given you. 
the question that I'm wanting you guys to go through this week, for those of you who have small group, to talk about through in small group, to pray through in your own life, is to ask God this question. God, how am I doing in stewarding my ministry? Lord, not the money stuff. The money is important because the money, you're not going to give me the ministry if I'm not getting the money right. But once I start getting the money right, then God, you're going to give me the stuff that really matters. And the stuff that really matters, that's what we want to talk about. The true riches. The people, the ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, you see a test that's been passed you don't, be, you don't get approved before you've passed a test of some sort. And the word trust there again, we've shown ourselves faithful so God can trust us. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing to men, but God who tests our hearts. He says the ministry that we're doing, I am not doing a trying to please the people around me. The ministry that I'm doing, I'm trying to please God because he is the one who tests my heart. My ministry and so such an important bishop principle when it comes to things of the faith. That maybe not so much, but a couple of years ago, relevance was the buzzword in church. Church must be relevant. Anyone ever hear that? Valid point. Here's the key question. Who decides when I'm relevant? The people I'm ministering to or the God I'm ministering for? Am I relevant when the people think I'm relevant? Or am I relevant when God says I'm being relevant? Am I being relevant when I'm meeting the needs that people are wanting to have met? I'm not saying we must discount that. Don't mishear what I'm saying. There's a point where we need to meet felt needs, definitely. Or am I being relevant when I'm doing what God is saying I must be doing? In whose eyes do I need to be relevant? That's the crux. And sometimes I think we... We slipped towards being relevant in the eyes of people as a church in general rather than being relevant in the eyes of God. We need to be prophetically relevant. Prophetically relevant. Let me try that again. We need to be prophetically relevant more before we are practically relevant. We need to be pleasing to God, not to men. And then can we stand this evening, First Timothy 1, as we close out. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me, who has empowered me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into this ministry. The ministry you've been put into is because God has counted you faithful. He's given you a tap on the back already. He's given you a high five. He said, well done. This is a seal of approval on your life already. Up to this far, you have been faithful. Maybe not perfectly faithful. Maybe you didn't get 100% in the test. But you passed. Whatever God's pass mark is. I like to think it's more than South Africa's school pass mark. But anyway. I have found you faithful and I've put you into a ministry. Whatever ministry you, should, you have is something we should embrace and say thank you to Christ because it's a gift He's given us. Thank you that He has enabled us. Thank you that He has empowered us. Thank you that He's given us the ability to have been faithful up to that point. And then the question we 
regularly need to ask for us corporately, collectively as a church, for each of us individually? God, how am I doing in terms of stewarding the ministry you have given me? How am I doing in terms of stewarding the people you've given me to disciple? Lord, how am I doing in terms of stewarding the prayers that you have laid upon my heart? How am I doing in terms of stewarding the ministry gifts that I have the ability to teach or whatever it may be? How am I stewarding that? I can tell you as a lecturer, if a student came to me before a test, having worked out some past papers, coming with questions and saying, how am I doing? Can you help me? Any lecturer worth his salt would smile to help that student because that's a student that wants to pass. It's the students who can come complain after they failed that lectures don't have too much time with. Sense in my heart is God is some. God always has time for us. But when we go to God before the test, God, how am I doing? God, am I understanding this right? God, am I on the right page? God, am I still in the right chapter here? Are we, I missed one or two classes. What work do we do in that class, God? Because I want to make sure that I catch it up. The textbook, whatever it may be, however that translates into our lives. God, we want to be faithful with what matters, the true riches. One translation speaks about heavenly riches. Let's pray. Father, I'm this evening so aware of the incredible abundance of gifting, calling, ministry in various facets, Lord, that you have placed in this room and upon this room and lives in this room on us collectively, but also on us individually, Lord. And right now, I pray, Holy Spirit, for an ability and enablement to be faithful beyond where we've ever been faithful. God, I pray for those, Lord, who've been laboring, that, God, you would just come sort of and stick your head into the classroom or into the study room and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep it up to those, Lord. For those of us who need a little bit more encouragement, God, who maybe falling off the rails, who, who feel we're not getting the work on. God, I pray for grace to sit at your feet, God, for those extra lessons, that remedial work that will come and help and teach us, God, because we want to be found faithful, Lord. We want to be found faithful in that which truly matters, Lord, the heavenly riches. As a church, God, we ask that you would come and make us faithful. For all of our individual ministries, Jesus, I pray, make us faithful. Let us be a church of people who is found faithful when you come. That your words will become, let us celebrate together. Lord, we want to be able to celebrate faithfulness. Thank you that you have smiled upon us and put us into ministry. So Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about some Something specific relating to what I've been sharing. Just take a moment, wherever you're standing now, and respond to him. Just pray a prayer of commitment or invitation, whatever it may be. Just bring that area of ministry or perhaps even your finances, whatever it may be. Just bring it to his feet again and say, Lord, just I want to bring this to you.
Lord, thank you that you are truly gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. God, I pray that all of us, even in this week, God, we would come and approach you as our schoolmaster in this sense, our trainer who's filled with so much love, who wants to equip and train us, prepare us. And that as we come, God, that we can come knowing that you are gracious and compassionate, Lord, that our questions are not dumb questions. Our struggles are not stupid struggles to you. That the even seemingly obvious things that we don't get, God, that you will take the time to teach them to us because you are a good teacher. Even if we struggle to learn, you remain a good teacher. Come and teach us so that we may pass, Lord, every test of the heart that you bring our way. Jesus. listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that it was time well spent establishing God's kingdom and proclaiming His glory in your life. For more information, call us on 012-362-1363 or email us at pretoria at shofaronline.org. You may also wish to browse our website at www.shofaronline.org or find us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria. Thank you.